to season two of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brad Fullerton, alongside fellow co-host, Tony Capasso. Both Tony and I are practicing trainee sport and exercise psychologists and use our experience and knowledge to bring sports psychology and wellbeing concepts to life. But we don't do this alone. We speak to highly specialised guests who also share their personal and professional experiences with wellbeing and sports psychology. On the pod, we encourage listeners interested in all things sport to tune in whilst we provide insight on what working in the world of sport is like. We ask our guests the right questions to provide you with a deep dive into their specialised area of expertise and hope that after listening to each episode that you've taken something away with you. We want to redefine what making it in sport looks like. We hope that by speaking to guests who have made a successful career in sport, we can do just that. Now, let's get into another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. This will be our 19th episode of Season 2, so we've had 19 weeks in a row of chatting to guests working in the world of sport and, and athletes, and it's quite crazy going into Christmas. I can't believe that we've we've done so many in a row. It's, it's been a shift, but we've had some good feedback over the last few weeks, and, and we really appreciate it. It really, it really keeps us going. Um, Tony? It's been a long journey, mate. How how are you feeling about that over the course of the season? Yeah, obviously, um, it has been. I think we didn't realise how big the task would be when we sort of signed up to it um, and said it on the trailer, um, which feels like it, like years ago now when we released that trailer. Um, but it's been great. And as you said, we've had some really nice feedback over this season, which has been great. We've also experienced a massive growth in listeners and followers as well, which has been great. Um, so yeah, anyone listening, please do provide us with some feedback. It's always good to hear whether it's negative, positive, constructive, just let us know. Um, Cause yeah, it's been really great. And we hopefully will continue growing as well as we look forward to sort of the next, the next season, the new year. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm just thinking probably worth mentioning the fact that we got a Spotify wrapped, which was quite crazy. And um, I think I found myself in the top 0.5% of fans <laughs> for my own podcast and Tony had himself in the top one. So, you know, you got yeah. it back. Yeah. Love the sound of our own voices, don't we, clearly. But um, yeah. you know, I think... It's because I'm I'm always telling myself it's because like, we listen back to the content so we can put it out there um, yeah. on like LinkedIn and stuff and try and find like really good quotes. But um, yeah, that was quite funny to get that on my Spotify wrapped. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough talking about ourselves. Clearly love ourselves here. Um, <laughs> we've got a special guest waiting in the wings as usual. Our, our guest today is David Smith. David's a sports psychologist consultant, S&C coach and sport diversity leader, so a solid couple of titles there, as I mentioned to him before. How are you doing, David? I'm doing fabulous. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We, we appreciate you sort of getting in touch and, and you know, wanting to come on and, and share your story, and we're, we're really looking forward to, to sharing it with our listeners and, and getting to know you a little bit better. Yeah, I appreciate the invitation as well, and I'm looking forward to having a nice chat. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. First question, staple question on the Young Player Wellbeing podcast. 
just if you could tell us a bit about your experiences in sport growing up, so what your sport was, how you got into it, and the level that you played at. So for me, my experience in sport growing up is a bit varied because my parents really struggled to find me a sport that I actually liked doing. And we tried every sport. We tried basketball. We tried baseball. We tried soccer. We tried American football and everything like that. And I was just so we would do maybe a season, maybe half a season of each sport. And I just hated it. And I realized I am not a team sport player. I do not like team sports. But when I was growing up, my mom, this was right at the height of the aerobics craze, you know. And so my mom used to do these aerobics classes and she would do them at the local rec center and would take me with her. And I would go and play in the swimming pool for the hour and a half or so that she was doing her class. I would go play in the swimming pool. So after a while, my parents, with a lot of trial and error of these other sports, you know, getting me involved and trying to get me interested in it, and I was just not going anywhere. And finally, I suggested, well, I've been doing these swimming during your aerobics classes. Maybe I should join a swim team or something. So finally, my parents, you know, realized, oh, it's more of an independent sport kind of, kind of kid. And we joined a swim team, and I ended up being a swimmer for quite a few years in my childhood growing up and, and being a part of that, which was really interesting and really great because, you know, if I was figured if I'm going to go swimming anyway, I might as well make it part of the team sport. So that was where I, I started at. And it's, it's hard to say kind of what level I got to. I remember doing some regional competitions and, and events that definitely were like, you know, you have to hit a certain qualifying time for, and, you know, people would wear the expensive, swimming suits for and things like that and I definitely remember doing that but I just I don't really remember too distinctly like how good I was or if I was even really that good and everything like that because by the time I quit I was around 13 14 years old when I quit and and at that point I was just you know we'll talk about here that here in a a few minutes but I ended up quitting because of uh, a lot of issues that I was facing internally that just made me miserable in the sport. So I ended up quitting that sport around 13, 14 years old. So when I went into high school, I actually ended up joining the marching band. And so throughout my entire high school career, it was more just marching band type focus, which is considered kind of a sport. I think it's a sport, but most people will think it's not a sport and, and stuff. But it definitely has a lot of those sport type qualities to it, especially the uh, the athleticism of it, the discipline, the training. A lot of these, the performance aspect of it, which is really important as well. So I ended up doing that throughout high school. And then and then from there, I was, but when I graduated high school, I was pretty much done with marching band. So yeah, growing up, it was swimming initially and then marching band. Okay, yeah, thanks for that, mate. So a bit of a, a pick and mix to begin with, trying to figure out where your place was within sport. We've spoken to guests in the past who have been a bit more multi-sport as well, and then ended up kind of going into swimming until you're about 13, 14 and, and competed at a sort of regional type level, you know, competing against the the clock, you need to get a certain time, et cetera, that mm-hmm. you mentioned as well. Um, takes us nicely on to a second question. I know you were saving a bit for this. <laughs> you you kind of, you dropped out at that age around 13, 14. Mm-hmm. So that probably lead us on to the question of what were your experiences of well-being slash psychology? So maybe why you dropped out around that time? Right. So for me, I'm a I'm openly gay. And around that age, around 12, 13, 14 years old was when I started to 
figure it out. I was questioning my sexual orientation. I definitely knew I did not like girls, despite everybody else in my school and all my teammates and classmates, everybody, you know, wanted a girlfriend. And I'm like, mm, no thanks. And uh, well, the pool actually was attached to a college that was across the street from where I grew from my neighborhood that I grew up in. So I would walk to and from the pool to swim practice every day. And walking home, I would walk through the library. And that's when I started to, you know, kind of go around into the library and look for some books and things that, you know, could maybe help me answer some of these underlying questions and curiosities that I had. And that's when I realized I was gay. And I'm a very outspoken, kind of very expressive person. So I think a lot of people definitely knew I was gay before even I knew I was gay. And as a result, I faced a lot of discrimination and bullying growing up, you know, even before I knew what it was that that they were making fun of me for. And it, this was a very much a big case on the swim team as well. There was a few people on the swim team that were just giving me a lot of hard times and, you know, making it hard for me. And then on top of that, struggling with that internal sense of self and a sense of identity made me face a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of mental health issues, things like that, that being in that sporting environment and dealing with that bullying and dealing with that discrimination as an athlete, you know, especially in something like swimming, right? Because in swimming, you know, you've got people in Speedos and everybody's running around half naked and all, all these things. And so, you know, they're going to make comments and they're going to make judgments about you, even if they're not even true, even if you don't even know what it is they're saying at the time, you know, it, it has a negative impact on you. And so that's where I really started to struggle with the sport. And when I said, you know, I started to really resent being there and I was unmotivated because it was just this climate that I was unhappy in and I felt unsafe in. And so I really struggled just to show up to practice. And my coach had no idea what was going on. He just thought I was some, you know, bad attitude kind of person. He didn't realize that there was so much internal conflict there and so much things happening with the teammates that he uh, was not able to observe that made me not want to be there in the first place. So by the time I ended up quitting, he had no idea why I quit. My parents didn't know why I wanted to quit because I didn't tell them until later on when I was like, when I finally came out to them. And that made that a lot of a struggle for me. So when I quit and I was kind of out of that environment, and then that's when I started to come out of the closet myself. I talked to my parents, I talked to my family, some of my family, not all my family, but some of my family, as well as some of my very close friends. And it slowly unfolded throughout high school where, you know, I was able to express this a little bit more openly. And I realized at the time, especially I was, because I was facing these issues, anxiety, depression, I actually also was suicidal during that time as well. I mean, you're 13 years old. How the, how, how the hell can you be suicidal at 13 years old? But, you know, it was so scary and, and the hatred was so high that it was, it was, I didn't know what to do. And I felt so alone and my parents, you know, obviously my mom took me to a, a therapist and we, you know, did counseling for like a year and a half. And then finally the time where I, I, I kind of realized who I was and my, my self, sense of self and my self identity. And I came out to my mom and I came out to my parents and that was like a huge burden lifted off of me because I don't have to hold this secret. I don't have to try to pretend to be somebody else or hide who I am, which was causing all these issues with my mental health in the first place. And then getting out of that environment and from, from the discrimination and, and, and bullying that I experienced in the pool, getting out of that environment really helped out a lot. So by the time I hit high school, you know, I have, I was more assured in who I was as a person. I was more confident in who I was. And, 
overall, my mental health was a lot more healthy and, and positive in that regard as well. So going through marching band, going through the, the pains of high school and everything like that, as an openly gay person, I was a very one of the very few openly gay people at in, in, in my school at the time. And so going through high school, being that only openly gay person, it wasn't easy, but it, it was a lot easier to deal with. Okay. No, thanks for that, mate. Certainly a lot to sort of dig into there and we appreciate you sharing your you know your openness around some of the concerns that you had around that time uh, particularly around the stuff that you mentioned around um, anxiety depression and sort of suicidal thoughts I think just speaking these things um, speaking on these things can can be really important um, and uh, we appreciate that so I just firstly wanted to ask around you, you sort of said you were questioning your identity and you sort of said, like, you know, you know, you didn't like girls, so you're maybe questioning things in your head. So what sort of questions, like, might they have been? Because there could be other players that are going through something similar where they maybe can't quite put their finger on exactly what it is that's happening to them. And maybe you being able to share might help them to understand that a little bit more. Yeah, and it's the social pressures that exist a lot in, in youth in youth environments right so not just sports but in school you know community groups everything where at that age i mean my classmates were everybody was you know wanting to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend right and and when i say that i mean they were straight right so all the boys wanted girlfriends all the girls wanted boyfriends everything like that and there was just it felt so much pressure at that age just to date you know and and have a crush on somebody or or want to go on a date with someone and you know, I had girls that were wanting to ask me out and, you know, all my friends were wondering, oh, do you have a girlfriend yet? Do you have a girlfriend yet? Oh, look, the school dance is coming up, you know, things like that. So you just kind of get this social pressure to, 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 you know, just say yes to whatever girl asks you out. But, but internally I was like, no, I'm really ill. I, you know, I had a girlfriend, the only girlfriend I ever had you know, I, I was just kind of with her because it was okay, easy for appearances and stuff like that. But she wanted, she was like, Oh, let's go kiss. Let's go, let's go behind the door and kiss. And, you know, trying to, I was just like, mm, let's stay out here in public where people can see us and we don't have to kiss and, you know, things like that. I just had no desire to engage in any of these, you know, you know, looking back on it now, you're like, Oh, yeah, cute little kids just, you know, kissing for the first time. And I was like, just the thought of that, I was like, "Ew, no, I don't really want to," <laughs> you know. And so, so, but, but, how do you express that, right? You know, and and especially at this time, because I liked the Spice Girls, I liked Britney Spears, I liked Madonna, I like all these singers that, that boys my age did not listen to. And if I mentioned that, I said, and they said, "Oh, who's your favorite, you know, singer?" Oh, I like this person. I like this guy. I like that guy. And I'm like, I like Britney Spears. And they're like, ha, 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 you know, f word, you know, calling me insulting, you know, stuff like that, right? Because it's, you know, so so just just having those kind of interests and having those, in this case, lack of interest in a lot of these kind of social pressures that are put on you, it kind of it's alienating, right? Because you can't really connect with your friends. You can't connect with your people. They're going to, you know, find ways to make fun of you, things like that. So that was really a big struggle for me because, I mean, how do I connect with other guys that are interested in Britney Spears when you're 13 years old in middle school, right? <laughs> and stuff. So, so trying to understand who that was, but then also 
you know, reflecting on myself and said, oh, I have a crush on this guy. You know, I have a crush on my classmate or I have a crush on somebody. Well, you know, ask myself, is that okay? Because none of my other friends seem to have crushes on their other classmates of the same gender. And is that okay? Am I the only person that feels like this? You know, is there other people out there that also feel like this? Are these feelings normal? Is there something wrong with me? And then especially when you start adding this mental health component to it and then the the social pressures of it. And then, of course, no shortage of people that will latch onto that and tell you you're going to hell and you're, you know, you're an abomination of society or whatever like that, you know, taking all these things and kind of throwing it back at you and telling you that everything about you as a person is a wrong it, it it obviously gets to you especially when you're that young and you have no idea what it is you're even feeling in the first place so you're already starting to question oh is there something inherently wrong with me as a human <laughs> was i made wrong was i born wrong or something like that and the reality is is no you weren't you were born just to be who you are and and stuff but it's just how much of this pressure and how much of this ways that we expect kids to act and be at that age that was so much at odds with who I was as a person really made me question a lot of just these fundamental components of who I was. Yeah. Identity is something that comes up all the time in this podcast, but it's usually us talking about your, your identity as a, an athlete and then your identity as a person and, and splitting those. But, you know, what I'm hearing is that even you as a, a person were questioning even outside of sport, who, who you were, and I can imagine that was extremely, extremely challenging. Um, so mm-hmm. thanks, thanks for sharing all that stuff. But I think being a young person it is a bit of an exploration of, of who you are constantly. So there's always going to be this sort of ongoing battle of like, who am I with? Where do I fit in? When you get to that sort of teenage age. Um, yeah. So I think it's important to highlight that a lot of people will be going through something, something like that. Maybe not the same version that you went through yourself, David, but um, certainly a, a bit of a, a challenging time in, in terms of... Oh, and I, I will say that the nice thing is, is for a lot of kids nowadays, that there's a lot more representation out there that would show, mm-hmm. hey, you know, there's it's a lot... A lot of kids nowadays are able to shape their identities a little bit more informatively and, yeah. and be able to have that kind of representation and visibility to say, okay, you know, there are people like this and there are people like that and there's a all sorts of different kinds of people. So as you go through that process, it's a lot easier to kind of find out who that is for yourself too. Yeah, and I'm sure you going on to various podcasts as well as this one's helping to do that for people as well, which is great. Uh, we just want to move on to the sort of next question. appreciate everything that you shared there. It, you mentioned something that you resented sport at that time at 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we find ourselves on a sport podcast and, we f- and we'll talk about your research later when you're working in the field of sport, but one area that you are supporting people with is you're using your platform to support athletes who are also members of the LGBTQ plus community. So could you tell us how you do that? And maybe if you can talk on that sort of resentment that you mentioned beforehand, like how are you still involved in it now if you resented it at that time? Right. I mean, it's ironic because as much as I resented being part of sport and resented sport for for creating all these negative issues that I faced, sport was also the thing that helped save me in a lot of ways. Because after I graduated high school, I was lost and I didn't have anything going on or really any community to connect with. 
I wanted to connect with the greater LGBT community, but I didn't know where to start. And I had no, I grew up as an American kid in the, in the suburbs, right? So in the suburbs, the best that you can expect is McDonald's and Walmart, you know, down the street. So you don't have a lot of these super cohesive resources or, or emerging communities that pop up too commonly around there. So when I was at that age and I said, okay, well, I'm going to college, but I have no idea what I want to do. Again, it was kind of an exist, a, a self-identity crisis. I knew who I was, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was thinking, I would really like to return to swimming. I would really like to get back into swimming again. And the time I saw, it was the 2008 Olympics, and I was very much inspired by the 2008 Olympics. It was, oh, that'd be so cool. I would love to have that kind of experience. And how do I have that experience? So I said, well, I need to get back into swimming. And I started just going to the pool on my own and swimming on my own. But I, I said, well, I need more guidance. I need coaching. I need, you know, somebody to help me get to a competitions, things like that. I researched and Googled LGBT swim team in my area and I found one. And I looked at the website and I saw what they were doing and it looked right up my alley. But it was still kind of scary because now this was like, okay, I found what I'm looking for, but this is my first time ever really kind of connecting with a greater community of LGBT people and they seemed to be a little bit older than me and and I wasn't sure if I was going to be accepted or was going to fit in but I emailed the coach anyway I said hey you know I would love to come and check out the swim team I here's my experience he said yeah definitely come come and join us you know we'll we'll see what practice so I went to that first practice and it was scary walking in but that was at that point only that was the only fear I ever had was just the courage to walk in and, and check it out because as soon as I got there they were they were welcome you know come and join us and we're happy you're here and we're happy you're a part of us and so joining that swim team especially because i was facing a lot of the, the same mental health issues at the time depression and anxiety just because i didn't know where i was going with my life getting into that helped me find a sense of community and a sense of purpose again because now i was driven by goals and and i had a community support to help me develop and grow i was challenging myself I was doing things like competitions and traveling all over the country, all over the world eventually, and everything like that. That was a major 180 from what I was maybe even just a year prior before I joined the swim team. And so it really had a good positive impact on my life. So I say it's ironic that sport actually saved my life after I was so resentful in leaving it. And then from that experience, I had competed in my first gay games in 2010, which was maybe a year and a half, two years after I joined. And the Gay Games is the largest, one of the largest quadrennial multi-sport events in the world. And it's modeled after the Olympic Games. So it's all the pomp and circumstance of the Olympic Games with the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies. And, you know, athletes, thousands of athletes from all over the world come into the town and competing in all sorts of different sports. You got medals, you got parties, you got cultural events, you got all these things. So participating in that event for the first time made me realize, wow, I am part of something even greater than myself. I am part of something big. And that was my first real ex like Olympic experience, you know, because it's not the Olympics, but it was that level of, of excitement and energy and people getting involved and made me realize there's a whole world of people out there just like me that I am now part of this greater community and I'm meeting all these people from all over the world. And it was so exciting to realize what I was a part of and what I was doing at that moment. And, and that was entirely just through swimming. So that shaped everything that I, I started doing from there. And that's when I realized, you know what, 
I want other people to have that same experience that I had. And unfortunately, a lot of LGBT, a lot of LGBT athletes never had that experience themselves, especially at the regular Olympics, which is why the gay games itself actually exist was to help more LGBT people have that Olympic type experience. And I was like thinking, I want to help other people have this experience myself. And that's what shaped my entire career trajectory to pursue exercise and sports science and exercise sports psychology and all the work that I'm doing now, because it says, Hey, there's so much more that you could do with sport. And, and there's so much more that sport can offer you simply by doing sport and to be part of all this, which was really a profound experience for me to say, well, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, we can overcome discrimination, improve inclusion in sports and improve diversity in sports, but it's also how do we help a lot of athletes, maybe like me when I was younger, understand, hey, there's more to this that you can get out of it on a positive note than there is on the negative note. And it's okay to to still be yourself and still do this because look, there's an entire worldwide community of people out there that are doing this. And there's a place for you within that community. And there's a place for you within this movement, both if you do it as part of the LGBT community, or if you decide to do it on your own as well, the option is out there. The resources are out there and the community support is out there as well. So being part of that myself and realizing, you know what, what can I do to help make that a reality for other athletes and other people became a central mission to my career and everything that I've been doing since then. Yeah, that's amazing. It certainly sounds like a very eye-opening experience and one that sounds mm-hmm. like changed changed everything almost. It's definitely not something I was aware um, that was a thing. So there we go. Mm-hmm. Maybe our, um, yeah. our listeners are educated on that as well. Um, but really, really great stuff that you're trying to support other athletes who are going through similar experiences to yourself to say, look, there's a little bit more out here. And it's maybe not all so negative. Let's try and look at the positives of it and, and really mm-hmm. trying to try to maximize I, that. So. I will say one of the most profound experiences was purely marching through the opening ceremonies. When you march into a stadium full of people that are cheering you on and you're with your teammates walking across the field and they announce, oh, Team USA is coming in. That's That's an experience. Like, I don't care if you're gay or straight. Not many people ever have that experience. And the gay games is one of the few times I've ever had that experience. And you just, thousands of people are cheering you and you see your face on, on the big jumbotron and just being in that energy, like it's, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's so hard to describe and not many people ever get to have that experience. But the fact that that's one of the few opportunities where you can have that kind of experience, it's so, it's such an amazing thing to experience regardless of who you are. And, and it's like, again, if, if people can understand, just have that simple experience on their own, they realize, wow, there's so much more to this than just, just being there, you know? Yeah. Like, it's like one of those things you think about, like, when you're in your, in bed at night, like, oh, my name, <laughs> lights, literally, like, name, <laughs> type thing, scoring the winner type, <laughs> type vibes, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, uh, exactly. Anything to chip in there? No, I just uh, when he was talking about the gay games, I had a little a quick Google um to have a look at it. It's, it's massive, so it's it's really surprising that like 
just not heard of. Um, so it's great yeah, that obviously it's great that you're sharing the word and like spreading the news of it because it's really interesting to see. And yeah, you're so right, Brad and uh, David as well. Like that sensation of like walking out into a stadium must have been insane, especially it's, like a packed stadium. It'll it'll change your life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I'd have bottled it at that point. And just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now we're talking to our athletes last night about ways to like grow confidence, and one of them is to like, you know, picture yourself in big moments, like do a bit of imagery, and I think that's certainly one of those. And I can only mm-hmm. imagine actually done it that you could be yeah. dropped so so often for for a bit of confidence. Um, but yeah, amazing discussion so far. Um, just want to move on to our next question. You mentioned the word. Um, inclusion before so what are some of the barriers that gay athletes will experience what more could we be doing in the world of sport to be more inclusive in this sense there's definitely in, in terms of barriers there's a lot of issues that I've, I've observed as myself ironically because I was not a team sport athlete but I'm actually working with team sports as a coach now including the soccer club and a lot of I observe is a lot of just kind of casual homophobia so making some gay jokes and things like that here and there that generally maybe seem innocent. But I, I always tell every sports professional I, I ever, I ever talk to and work with at some point you are going to work with, or you've already worked with, or you are working with an athlete that identifies as LGBTQ. And whether or not they, re- they choose to be visible is entirely their business. But what they're paying attention to is how the environment makes them feel do they feel safe in this environment do they feel represented do they feel like this is an environment that they could continue to thrive in or be able to focus on the sport itself without having to worry about oh am i going to get found out am i going to get you know if if i come out are people are going to make fun of am i going to be discriminated against am i going to face bullying things like that and so they're paying attention to a lot of just small little action behaviors and things that people say And most importantly, how do the people in charge respond, right? So, for example, when I'm working with my soccer players, you know, they they crack gay jokes here and there once in a while. And some some of them I will laugh at myself as an openly gay guy because I'm like, okay, you know, I get that. But but the way that I respond to them is to make sure it's a visible show of support for gay people Mm. and saying, hey, you know, that is not an acceptable thing to say or that's not an acceptable thing to do or something like that that has that visibility that shows that whatever that language is or whatever that behavior is is not okay within this environment because i know that of maybe the 20 athletes that i'm working with in that group statistically speaking two or three might be might be lgbtq or identify in some way and they're paying attention and saying okay they know how their teammates act, but how is the coach going to react? And how is that going to create an environment? Do I feel safe in? Can I trust that this person will allow me to, if I choose to come out, will that be an okay person I can come out to? And do I feel comfortable being in this environment, right? Because you have not just obviously on the pitch, but you have in the in the locker room, you have in other team functions and places like that, where a lot of these things can just happen. So for me, it's building inclusion through intentional behaviors and visible behaviors. I had a, a discussion with a very high-level strength and conditioning coach a few years ago because I did an internship with him when I was just starting out my career, and I, I was there for six weeks, and then I quit. And I, I again, just like the swim team, I was just I was just 
okay, I'm out of here, made up some excuse and I quit. What they did not know at the time is the reason why I quit was because the environment in which his, the internship was built around the, the, the gym and the athletes that were there were, there was a lot of signs that made me feel unsafe as a gay person. And I'm unapologetically gay. I don't go out of my way, you know, saying, hey, everybody, I'm gay. I'm not going to walk in a room and be like, I'm gay. But it's, you know, if you pay attention for more than five minutes, you'll probably pick up on it. You know, I'm not exactly <laughs> going to hide it either, right? And I wear shirts that have rainbow flags and say gay games and stuff like that. So, you know, it's 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 not something I'm trying to hide at the same time. But when I pay attention to these environments and I'm in that kind of environment, I'm like, this is not exactly an environment I, I feel safe in. So um, that was just, yeah. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I was in this environment, I had this, this conversation with the, the head of this, this uh, strength and conditioning coach later on. He was very high level. And, you know, I was talking to him about that. I was like, the reason why I quit your internship was because of this reason. And at first he was kind of defensive and he's like, well, I have, I have two op openly gay coaches on my staff. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I did not know that at the time because they were not visible. And when I started to experience some of these homophobic action behaviors, I did not see anybody respond to it. I did not feel that I was represented in this environment and I felt unsafe. So for me, the biggest aspect of inclusion is by creating that visible environment to make me feel safe whether I'm an athlete, a coach, a professional, or any other person in that regard, so that regardless of, of what happens, you can't always, you know, you can't always control how people, what people say or do, but how you react to it is what dictates the values in the, in the, the environment that you create. So the fact that there was nobody there that, you know, kind of stood up and, and um, shot down some of these homophobic behaviors was a big sign for me. And that's where in my own practice, I work hard to be visible about that. So if somebody makes a gay joke on my team, I might respond to it. I might have fun with it. But at the same time, it's also a visible behavior on my, on my regard to um, shut it down and make sure that they know this is not an acceptable thing to do in the long run. Because I know that there is an athlete who identifies or maybe is starting to question who he is that is observing that. And it's going to dictate their entire future relationship with sport altogether. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> just want to ask this this sort of two part question because you spoke about it at the very start when you when talking about what sport you got into, um, and you said that you were sort of eventually drawn towards swimming, which is an individual sport. Uh, and you're an individual sport athlete, um, but now you work in in team sport as a coach. So just interested to see because I was an individual sport athlete as a youngster but then actually since I've grown up I've realized that I'm much more suited towards team sports because I'm quite social and very extroverted so what was it in your character do you think that drew you to being an individ individual athlete but then when it came to actually coaching you like coaching in the team sport like for me as an individual athlete I was always frustrated because I always felt like it's hard to to really feel like you can rely on other people. And for me, I always struggle with, okay, I've got the ball. Okay. I know what I want to do with it. Okay. I should pass it. I should, you know, do this or I should do that or whatever. But then I would do that. And then, you know, the athlete misses the, the pass or, you know, does something else. And it was always having to rely on other people that weren't always there <laughs> or people that I feel like I could rely on 
or you know like i said you know sometimes there was just some people that were jerks and i'm like okay i really hate you and and just being in that kind of environment or they maybe really hated me and whatever so really trying to be friends with other people on the team and knowing i had to rely on them was so frustrating because i was like well here's what i want to do <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily what the team was good for the team or what other athletes wanted to do as well so it was kind of hard for me to really feel like I fit in in that regard because, you know, I, of course, I'm some dumb kid. So obviously what I wanted to do and that wasn't always in the best interest of the team or even the smartest thing to do. Right. But it was always kind of frustrating to feel like I wasn't always heard or or had to rely on other people. And, you know, some people like, you know, there's no no secret that sometimes people play favorites. So, you know, why do these athletes get to play more on the field and I don't or something like that? So. It was always kind of a struggle to be in that environment and feel like I could really enjoy myself. But when I was doing individual sports, it was always nice because it was like, it's all me, you know, and, and this is maybe, you know, selfish and cocky me, but I'm like, it's all about me, you know? So, so it's, I'm the one swimming the race, right? But the only person I'm accountable to is myself. I don't have to rely on somebody else. I don't have to, you know, wait for somebody else to be there and, and stuff like that. It's just, I show up for my race and I swim it and I finish. And what the result is, that's entirely on me. Like, you know, if I'm not happy with that result, I got nobody to blame but myself. And if I'm happy with that result, then I'm super excited because I'm like, look how cool I am. I just got a great swim, you know, or something like that. And even, even still as an athlete, I still sometimes kind of struggle with that because, you know, in swimming, there is a team event. There's relays that you can swim. So it's you and three other people swimming a relay race. And for the most part, I love relays, but sometimes when you have to rely on somebody else to, to show up for the relay and they don't show up. So instead of four people on your relay team, you have three, which means that your relay is going to get disqualified. It's like, I just want to kill you because you didn't show up to the damn relay and we missed out on this relay for no reason because you weren't there, you know. So but but I've, I've, I've tempered that quite a lot <laughs> since then. Um, but on the flip side of it, being a team sport coach. It's been interesting because um, obviously, I mean, you know, as a coach, I'm in charge. <laughs> and so that really helps. But also at the same time, like it's kind of fun to try and develop drills and exercises because for me, it's strength and conditioning. Right. So I'm not te I'm not teaching soccer skills. I'm not teaching the tactical or the technical aspects of soccer. I'm teaching physical conditioning and mental conditioning. So. There's a lot of these things that, you know, everybody has to do on their own level, you know, when it's doing these exercises. And I, I tell the athletes and I say, hey, the amount of effort you put into this is, you know, the amount of, of, of progress you're going to get out of it. Right. But at the same time, it's also kind of fun to do exercises on like developing group cohesion and coordination and synchronicity where you have the athletes do not just a strength conditioning exercise, but you do it in a way where they have a partner or they're doing it as a group or a team or something like that, that kind of has to help people learn how to communicate with each other and work together and work in coordination with each other so that they learn how to communicate. They learn how to be on the same level as each other. So when they are out in the, in the game or playing in their sport, they're able to, to better connect with each other and coordinate their actions with each other on the field so that they can be more effective as a team. So I find myself actually, thinking about a lot of those things that used to frustrate me when I was young and thinking, how can I make that better for the teams that I work with within the control that I have as their coach? And that was really, you know, kind of an interesting challenge for me because like I said, I am not living on experience here, but at the same time, I kind of am 
because those things that used to frustrate me that I had no control over, now I do have control over and think, how can I make this different than what I experienced? Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's brilliant, David. Thanks for that. And you've already started to sort of tap into our, our next question, but you've spoken a lot, especially on the call we had before, about trying to hybridize the SNC and sports psychology into one role. So how does that work beyond what you've already mentioned? And something in sports psychology that we hear about a lot is, is boundaries. So like, when am I the, the psychologist? When am I the coach? So how do you consider those when collaborating the roles as well? And that's a very good question because I think there's a lot of misinformation about what sports psychology does and is. You know, a lot of athletes, you say, oh, I'm a sports psychologist. And they think, well, I don't need a sports psychologist. There's nothing wrong with me. And I said, well, I never asked if there was anything wrong with you. <laughs> Just based on my judgment, I could probably figure some stuff out if I gotta, but I never asked if you were sick. <laughs> you know, that's not the reason why I'm here. Obviously, in sports psychology, if, if an athlete is experiencing an issue like they have performance anxiety or lacking confidence or something like that, that's obviously something that we can help them out with and work a, work with them on a treatment level. But a lot of sports psychology as well is, is kind of a lot of preventative stuff. So you know, we teach athletes, every, any coach in any sport has to teach their athletes what the skills are that they need to be able to compete and perform, right? So, you know, what are the rules of the sport? What are the, the things that you have to do to, to do it legally and successfully? And, and how do you play the sport, right? But there's not a whole lot there that they're teaching them mentally. How do you overcome anxiety? How do you overcome, how do you develop confidence? How do you develop team cohesion? How do you develop a lot of these things that are fundamental components of performance, but a lot of athletes aren't really well prepared to deal with. So, you know, you see this all the time when somebody has the yips, right? And they go out there and they wanna, they wanna take their shot and they've taken that shot a bajillion times and they know exactly how to do it. But in that moment, all of a sudden they just can't do it. And it's a mental barrier that they have that they need to overcome. Well, that's obviously one major component of sports psychology, right? But a lot of it also is just how do you train the mind during training so that when it comes performance time, just like when you train physically, you don't need to sit there and consciously think about what you're doing. You could just let your training carry you all the way through to the end. So I think a lot of it too is the hybridization of being able to take a lot of that skill development and combine it with a lot of exercises and the physical conditioning skills that we develop through strength and conditioning. So when we talk about things like coordination, reaction timing, again, also team cohesion, just so many aspects of it, the cognitive training, the mental training, the social training as well, is being able to say, how can we create exercise that challenge all these different aspects of what it means to be an athlete and not necessarily doing it separately because there's a lot of, reductionist type training where you think, okay, I'm going to take this part out, train it independently, put it back in, and then it's, it's better. Right. And so you say, okay, if I train this, okay, great. Now I'm going to train that. Okay. Now I'm going to train that. And then think, oh, you just go down the list and check everything off. But in sport, you're not doing these things separately. You're doing these things all together. When you're on the field, you're on the pitch playing, you're constantly looking around, keeping tabs of who's around you, you have to figure out where to pass the ball. You're constantly facing 
judgments and decisions at every single moment in that game. Do I pass? Do I keep? Do I shoot? What do I do? And you have to be constantly making those decisions in every regard. And you have to be constantly strategizing while at the same time you're running, you're sprinting, you're changing directions, you're blocking, you're doing whatever. So all these things are happening at once. So why are we not training athletes to do these things all at the same time? And so by hybridizing a lot of aspects of sports psychology, especially in regard to cognitive training, group cohesion, things like that, with the physical conditioning and saying, okay, let's run some sprints, but at the same time, we're going to do it based on reaction timing and proprioceptive awareness of where you are with the athletes around you. So being able to develop those kind of exercises, which are a new challenge that accomplish the same goals, but also not just the same goals in terms of like the physical conditioning, but the mental conditioning and even the social conditioning as well. But at the same time, actually end up becoming a lot more fun for the athletes. For example, one of my favorite games that I play with the with the the athletes is is I call it the circle the circle game, and the entire team gets into a circle and they're holding hands in the circle, but one of the teammates is outside of the circle, and the teammate on the outside selects a player in the circle and say I'm going to try and tag that player, and they tell the circle who it is, and then they have to run they have to stay outside the circle so they can't cut through, but they have to stay outside the circle and try to tag that player, but the circle has to move around and move and pivot to defend that player from being tagged. Well, in terms of like just the, the high intensity running and, and side to lateral shuffling and conditioning on that front, you also have the teammates all are constantly like having to see where they have to look around, see where guy is and tag. And then they got to communicate with each other. Okay. Turn to the right, turn to the left, go this direction, go that direction. You know, and they're constantly both sides are having to strategize the tactical aspect of it, of how do I tag this player? You know, so within that exercise, you get a whole lot of physical conditioning out of it in a lot of regards. But you get the mental conditioning as well, but also the communication, the cohesion, because even just the physical touch of doing this while holding the hands of your teammates does a lot in terms of the social cohesion of the team. And it helps to develop trust and communication and things like that. So in that single exercise, we accomplished at least three or four things that in the same amount of time as that exercise, a regular strength and conditioning set might just do something more basic. But in that same amount of time, we accomplished three times as much than what we might have otherwise done just doing a basic strength and conditioning set. So trying to develop those kind of workouts that really uh, are fun for the athletes, but also develop a lot of these different skills all at the same time. I think is a lot more of effective and efficient way of training because especially in, in, in this field, both sports psychology and strength and conditioning are still kind of undervalued in a lot of sports. So for me, my soccer team trains three times a week for two hours of, of practice. I only get 45 minutes within that time to work with my players once a week. So I have to utilize as much as that 45 minutes as I can to get my players as much as I can out of them in their own training. So this has been a really helpful way of being able to do that to make sure that when they leave my session, they really feel like that they, they achieve something. And then, you know, kind of going back to your question about the boundaries as well, right? Is that me being on the field, working with these athletes in that regard, creates a, a, a more direct relationship with all those athletes. So, and they know, okay, you know, we're working on, on all these kind of more general team 
performance anxiety, a lot of these skills, mental conditioning skills, but it also helps me to, to better examine the mental state of the team and the climate of the team, right? So the motivational and emotional climate of the team where I could sit there and say, okay, how are my athletes responding and like physically and, and mentally and expressively emotionally? How are they responding? If I say, Hey, how's it going? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling great. Oh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great. Or if they're like, Oh, I'm feeling kind of shitty, you know, stuff like that. That kind of gives me a better idea of, of obviously how that athlete is feeling, but how, so how the team is feeling. And then, you know, make sure that the team is aware of my role in the sports psychology aspect. So if one of them wants to come and talk to me, or if I need to maybe take an athlete off, for minutes their own practice and say hey you know do you, is there something going on it makes it easier for me to be able to to create an intervention for them and also just be able to talk to them one-on-one -on -one if i need to that makes it a little bit easier to still have that firm relationship in the sports psychology role but also creates a, a more sense of trust that makes it easier for me to be able to act in that regard and maybe even intervene if it looks like something maybe is going on that needs a little bit more attention and then, uh, you know, create that communication with the coaching staff if I need to, if they need to be aware of it, be able to develop that from there. So for a lot of that regard, it's, you know, I don't have an office at the sports club that I work with. So a lot of this is just kind of happening on the field as it plays out. But it makes it a little bit easier for me to, I feel like a little more capable in doing that work because I'm more in tune with what the athletes are, are doing and how they're feeling in that moment. So, and that I feel like makes it a little bit more effective both and the work that I do, but also the relationship that I establish with those athletes in this regard. Yeah, that's amazing, mate. I think it's just a great advert for why psychology or mental conditioning should be embedded into coaching. And that can maybe even be considered for like football coaches as well as S&C coaches. And it sounds like it's something that you've you've thought out and I'm certainly, certainly sold on it. And I've wrote um, the circle game down because I might... Uh, <laughs> Like pass it on to one of the SC guys. That I, I, I was gonna say I've got some videos of it on my Instagram and stuff, and I'll send you some videos okay. of it too. It's it's really hilarious. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, nice and uh, yeah, the stuff about boundaries as well. It's you know to to assess the cohesiveness of the team and also assess where people are at in terms of their well-being and know when is the right time to intervene as well. Was sort of what I heard from that, which is which is great, and then. You you mentioned the the time you mentioned the term motivational climate, which sort of takes us around to our next question. So, what does a motiv what does a motivational climate look like in a football environment, and what can we do, and what can coaches do to create it? So think of it, and and we use the meteorology metaphor for this, which is what I really like. Um, is if you imagine motivational climate as if it's the like a weather climate, right? So in the weather climate, in this case, we're talking about there's the day-to-day -day weather forecast. So, oh, today it's going to be sunny. Today it's going to be cloudy. Today it's going to be whatever the weather is, right? But then you have the overall climate, right? So based on where you live, your climate of, of the, the region that you're in is a certain way. So here in Germany, it's, it's humid, it's wet, it's cold, it's rainy all the time. That's kind of generally the overall climate. Versus, you know, okay, today it's snowy, tomorrow it's going to be sunny or something like that. But it kind of represents an overarching mood of how people are feeling in terms of their motivation and in terms of, of their overall status of do they want to be there or not, right? Because in the end, that's ultimately what motivation is, is. Do you actually want to be here and do things or not, right? 
And in motivational theory, you have different types of motivation ranging from a motivation where it's like a motivation is you don't want to be there at all. You've got several types of extrinsic motivation. So you're motivated by external rewards. So it could be, I'm, oh, I want to win a medal or I want to, you know, I'm avoiding punishment or, oh, if I do this, I get a taco or something like that. Right. But then you have the intrinsic motivation where you're like, I'm here just because I love this shit and I love doing it. And I'm here for the pure passion of doing this because I, I enjoy it. So it's, it's a spectrum and it exists on several different levels. You have the micro level, the meso level and the macro level. And the micro level is any, any activity at any moment in any second of the day is whatever your motivation is, right? So I am motivated to be talking to you on this podcast right now because I love sharing my story. I love doing all these things. That's on a micro level because that's within the minutes and whatever the activity is right now. The meso level is like, okay, today overall I'm feeling this kind of motivation, right? Or this week I'm feeling this kind of motivation. So for me, for example, this time of year is not my favorite time of year. So generally speaking, over the last few weeks, I have not been as motivated as I might otherwise be. But then you have the macro level of motivation. So your overall motivation for either the task or the extended period of time, right? So I love I love coaching. So generally speaking, I'm more motivated to do coaching or do research or do this. And this is over the course of months or a year, things like that. So every individual is constantly proceeding through different stages of these motivations on these different levels and it could fluctuate any day right so you know if i if i had a bad breakfast that morning maybe i'm not feeling motivated to play soccer because i have a stomach ache or something like that or you know maybe last week my you know favorite queen on rupaul's drag race got rejected so i'm kind of irritated <laughs> you know or something like that right so there's a bajillion different things that can influence motivation on every single level well, if you take this on the individual level and then you have the realization that every single person within that team is affected by motivation on all these levels, right? But then they're all connected to each other, obviously socially through their experience on the team. Then how does that motivation of each individual influence the motivation of the other individuals? So you have the players, you have the coaches, you have the parents. You have, you know, anybody else that might be present on the team, right? So if I come into practice and I'm in a really grumpy mood because of whatever reason, my motivation is really low. And my coach says, hey, how's it going? I say, well, blah, 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 you know, you know, shout insults at them and stuff like that. That's probably not going to leave him with a very positive impression of me in that moment, right? And maybe that might, might have a negative influence on him. So then maybe he goes and, you know, so everything kind of connects to each other and kind of creates this climate within that moment of how do we feel not just in the individuals but just how's the mood of the group as a whole and it's all based on how we all feel each other right so and it's you know the obviously the external influences so you know maybe the team lost a game last week so generally speaking the mood of the team is maybe a little bit lower because they they lost a recent game right so overall that motivational climate is affected and influenced by all these different factors that play in on the individual level and on the group level and on the team level as a whole through the micro, the meso, and the macro levels. And then as a result, you create this motivational climate to say, okay, well, maybe today the motivational climate isn't so strong or so motivated. So you have to think, oh, well, 
how do I get my athletes to practice? How do I kind of push them to get going? Or, or what do I need to do based on how people are feeling today? Is it appropriate to do this? Or maybe I should do something else instead. And so being able to be sensitive to that and know how to respond to it so that if you, if you have a, a, like a goal or something you want to get out of that practice of the day, how do you still achieve that in a way that your athletes and, and the group as a whole is able to do so productively and effectively? And so, yeah, when you look at that motivational climate, it's, it's all over the place and it's easily influential by a lot of different circumstances, again, on these different levels. So a good example of this, in my opinion, was, um, I like to use this example a lot, was the 2014 World Cup between Brazil and Germany, right? That very famous match where like Brazil just completely fell apart <laughs> and everything that just, you know, completely collapsed in that regard because, you know, two seemingly evenly matched teams we're going up against each other at the highest level of competition that there is in the sport. So what happened that caused Brazil to collapse? Well, you know, you could suggest, okay, well, star athlete number one had an injury and star athlete number two got a red card. So they were out. But why is it that just those two athletes all of a sudden causes the whole team to collapse? And, and, and what was the mood that that created after the fact? So, it wasn't even so much of the physical aspect of it, but the motive, the psychological aspect of it, because losing these athletes, the other team, the other athletes, they didn't know what to do. There wasn't any guidance. There wasn't a whole lot to go on there. So they became scared. They became anxious and they were lacking confidence, not just as individual athletes, but the group as a whole, the motivational climate as a whole was shaped by anxiety, confident, uh, lack of confidence and all these other things that ultimately led to the collapse of the team because if those players can't perform regardless, then it doesn't matter how good they are physically. It's just not going to happen. And that's ultimately why the team collapsed. So, you know, that could be an easy example of motivational climate where, like I said, in terms of shaping it and empowering it, it can come from the top down, but it comes from the bottom up as well. So, you know, you can easily, you know, sour the mood of a place by having everybody else is excited, but one person comes in with a bad attitude. And all of a sudden, people start having a bad attitude, right? Or vice versa, you know? Like uh, when you uh, when you asked me how I was doing today, I said, oh, I'm doing fabulous, you know? So maybe just th something like that could influence your day, help you feel maybe more positive, or, or maybe you'd be like, oh, well, I don't know why he's so fat, you know? Whatever it is, but it has an influence on you that might have affect the rest of the way that you maybe you perceive the day, right? So then what you do, and how you interact with others maybe affects their mood and so on and so forth. And then it all just kind of compounds upon itself in this, in this kind of system. It's a complex system. And, and ultimately that's what kind of shapes that overall climate. So yeah, when you're working with these clubs and we work with these teams, that motivational climate is if you have that one coach that always comes in, that's kind of a grump and a jerk all the time and everybody, you know, sees them and they're all like, Oh, well, the motivational climate of that group just went down because of one person, but you know, at the same time, if another coach comes in and says, hey, y'all, let's do something that's fun and engaging, like the circle game, then maybe the group of the, the mood of that team and the motivational, motivational climate on the short term and even the long term might be more positive, you know, because in the end, it, it shapes their relationship with each other and it shapes their relationship with the team and it shapes their relationship with the activity overall. Does that make sense? Yeah.
Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about climate as more of a like a group thing then, like sort of it, it hangs over all of us. And I like the idea that you mentioned about one person can affect that. So it's reminding me of a conversation we've had in the past about well-being being contagious. So if I'm feeling good, it might make others feel good. But also exactly. if I'm not feeling so good and I bring it in, then others go, oh, I'm actually feeling a bit rubbish after chatting to him because he's just moaning away. So... Uh, yeah, it makes sense. I, I really like that example uh, from the Brazil-Germany game. Uh, hopefully that sort of brings it to life a little bit. Tony, did you have any comments on anything David mentioned there? No, not particularly. I think, um, as you were saying there, Brad, it did remind me of some of the conversations we've had with um, Richard, I believe, um, yeah. when he was, he was on the podcast speaking about uh, yeah, how attitudes um, and behaviours can rub off on teammates and peers um, so it's, it's really good to hear that again from other research that's focused on slightly different areas but also having very similar results so yeah it's really good and obviously I liked how you use Germany as the example because it's um, obviously very relevant to where you're currently living. Yeah yeah that actually takes us around nicely so you are living in Germany David as Tony sort of segued there uh, could you tell us why that you moved to Germany? I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I love Denver, Colorado, but I spent my whole life living there. And one of the things I really wanted to do was to leave Denver, Colorado, <laughs> because, you know, I traveled all these great places all around the country, all around the world, and really enjoyed this experience. But I also knew that for my own individual growth, I needed to get outside my hometown and spend time living somewhere else. And since I was a kid, I always wanted to live in a new country. I always wanted to live in a different culture and experience life in a different country. And I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 2013 in uh, the degree was sport and exercise science. But I did five years working, trying to make myself, you know, in this career before I realized, okay, if I really want to go further, if I want to accomplish my goals, I need to go back to grad school. And I was really ready to leave Denver, so I was looking for grad schools outside of Denver, and I figured, okay, this is a great opportunity for me to, to go, and then I realized, well, if I want to live abroad, this is the best opportunity I have to be able to live abroad, so I started looking for grad schools outside of the country, and I looked at all over Europe, all over Germany, Australia was a good uh, top choice as well, and I was just looking at what programs were available and everything like that, so then I just started submitting applications to the top programs that I wanted to choose, and my first choice was here at the German Sports University in, in the sports psychology master. Excitingly, I got it. So I got accepted in the program. And then, you know, six weeks later, all of a sudden I find myself on a plane flying to Germany and taking this huge risk of, of I was technically homeless for like a week while I had to figure out how I'm going to, you know, where I'm going to live and how am I going to settle myself down and everything like that. But I made the trip and I moved out here because I wanted to experience life in a different country get what i always tell myself is i really wanted to experience and pursue personal and professional growth and doing it by leaving Denver was probably one of the most important things i could have done so that was ultimately my motivation to do it and because it was because grad school was the easiest way to kind of go through it but also as it represented going to grad school obviously was a major transition for my career and my journey overall so i figured okay you know if i'm going to transition anyway let's let's go for it and so really that's kind of what brought me to germany and to do my master degree in sports psychology now i'm doing my phd as well which is great and beforehand i was really trying to work with some sports teams 
but I was really struggling. You know, the internship wasn't working out as well as I wanted. I was working with a few different swim teams that as a coach, I experienced homophobic discrimination on as well, got fired from those teams. So my career was really kind of stuck in the mud in this regard. And I knew that if I really wanted to get to where I wanted to go, I was going to have to really step up my own, my own skills and my own capabilities, which is why I decided to do grad school in the first place. So coming to Germany, getting that professional and personal growth, right? Because living in a new country is a whole experience on its own and being able to learn how to navigate within this system has been immensely fulfilling for me and immensely growth, a lot of growth for me as well in this regard, which has been really an exciting journey. And it's, it's not been without struggle. I mean, there's been some major struggles the last five years or so, but right now where I'm at sitting, talking to you, it's like, I'm looking back on that and I'm realizing, wow, I am very happy with where I've, how far I've come and where I'm at right now and where I'm going, because it has been quite a journey and, and I wouldn't change anything for the world because it was so fruitful and so engaging in this part that, you know, when I look back from where I was five years ago, I don't even recognize who I was. <laughs> and it's been just a really amazing experience. Yes, I think it's a good advert for going outside of your comfort zone and trying something a bit new. And certainly moving to a new country has always been on my sort of list. And you're definitely selling the dream there in terms of, you know, moving over there, trying to figure things out. But it seems that you've grown a lot, you mentioned personally and professionally. And and uh, it's great to hear that as well, mate. So, yeah, thanks for that. So just moving on, David, we're just going to go on to one of Another one of our staple questions on the Young Player Wellbeing podcast, which is, what are your three tips for looking after your own well-being? The first tip, of course, is be yourself. If I've learned anything, the best thing I could have ever done for my my whole life and my own well-being was just to be myself. I realized this because in high school, as I was growing up, like I said, you know, I faced I faced bullying, I faced discrimination, but when I was struggling with who I was and trying to understand who I was and questioning it and trying to hide it, I realized I was more capable of doing harm to myself than anybody else was around me. So the moment that I stood up defiantly and decided I'm going to be myself regardless, then no matter what anybody else tried to do to hurt me, it didn't matter. So the first step, of course, always be yourself. The second step is, if you're not having fun, what's the point? You know, I love, I love, I love sport, but if I'm not having fun doing sport, why should I keep doing it? You know, if you're not having fun, why, why, why should you keep doing something if you don't enjoy it? Right. And the, the third thing that I always tell everybody, always be fabulous. <laughs> fabulous means being Big, awesome, over the top, and just take who you are and take it up to the next level. Always be fabulous. Good. So I would say, yeah, those are my three tips. Solid. Love it. Um, and then just lastly, mate, if, if you have any tips for young athletes or academy players out there, what might that be? Well, adding on to the Be Fabulous tip is I always tell my athletes, I love a grand entrance and a big finish. So whatever you do, always make a grand entrance 
and always come home with a big finish. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's just part of being fabulous. <laughs> Love that, mate. Nah, thanks very much. Um, certainly a very unique answer that you've given there. Um, and hopefully some of our players can, you know, be be as fabulous as as uh, as they can be. Uh, yeah, really appreciate that, mate. Um, brilliant chat. Thanks so much for for all your insight. Uh, some great dis- great discussion, and hopefully some that will be really beneficial for any of our, our listeners. Tony, have you got anything kind of just to close us off, mate? Um, yeah, a really interesting discussion we've had today. Um, I've really enjoyed obviously finding out more about your journey, David, um, hearing about your research and your work as well has been really fascinating. So thank you for coming on. I'm sure there'll be people that have taken a lot away from this episode, not just myself and Brad, but I'm sure a lot of people listening have taken away a lot of your insights. So yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's been fabulous. lastly is there anything that we should be keeping an eye out for with you is there anything you'd like to promote we kind of hand the reins over to you at this point in the episode yeah so i I was talking to you before we started recording i am developing my own podcast uh it's called drag race psychology and if you're a fan of the tv show rupaul's drag race we are going to be analyzing seasons of rupaul's drag race through the lens of sports psychology and performance psychology so We're going to do one or two episodes per season. So I cannot say that the episodes will come out on a consistent basis because I got to rewatch a lot of episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) But I'm already working through the first season, so that episode should be coming out here pretty soon. So I definitely recommend checking that out when uh, when we feature it. You can also find me on Instagram at Stonewall Performance. If you're on Facebook at Stonewall Performance, YouTube, at Stonewall Performance, on my website, www.stonewallperformance.com. And yeah, feel free to reach out if you have any questions, if you want to, you know, any advice in terms of how to be fabulous or how to make a big finish, all that stuff. I'm always here about that, uh, everything like that. And um, yeah, look out for my podcast. I hope to to get it out here within the next few weeks, either before Christmas or maybe right after Christmas, get that first episode of Drag Race Psychology out there, which will be awesome as well yeah Excellent. i mean be sure to plug some of that in our description and let our um, listeners can um, access that uh just to close off like i think we've got one episode left tony so yeah and it's just going to be me and you chatting i believe and, and reflecting you know as we do as uh, sports <laughs> yeah. psychologists so look forward to that if you want to hear me and tony reflect on the season what we've taken from it in a bit more detail um maybe fire a wee christmas hat on for that as well since it'll be out possibly not that you'll see that but um just know it is on um (laughs) yeah perfect now cheers for the chat guys um and we'll catch all of our listeners very soon thank you david see ya thank you